This week we come upon a passage of Scripture where Jesus has, has gotten away from the crowds. And he's alone with his disciples. And they're taking kind of their little personal retreat. And, and the cross is getting closer. Uh, towards the end of chapter 9, here as we uh, get towards the, the middle of June, uh, we're going to take a summer break from the Luke study. Uh, but we're going to end the last Sunday we're in Luke before we take our summer break. It's going to be the verse where it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So we're getting quickly to the place where something radically is going to change in Jesus's ministry. The adoring crowds are going to be the crowds that cry out, crucify him, murder him, kill him, get him, get him out of here. And so Jesus is drawn away to get along with his disciples to talk about discipleship, to talk about what it really means to follow him. So if you've ever found yourself in a place where you go, you know, I didn't expect this. <laughs> I didn't think it was quite going to turn out this way. This is a little bit tougher. This is a little more challenging than I thought, Jesus. Are you sure we're going down the right pathway? Uh, If you've ever been there in that place, uh, maybe these verses uh, will be an encouragement to you this morning. Luke chapter 9, starting verse 18 and going through verse 25. Hear the word of God. Now, it happened that he was praying alone. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, this morning as we, uh, we worship you, we have, uh, we have sung songs of your glory and the glory of the Lord Jesus. We have uh, given of our resources to uh, support uh, a ministry of service this coming weekend. Father, we have offered prayers to you, and, and now we come to uh, worship you with our minds. Father, I pray that we would not see this time as a time where we uh, sit back and we receive, but rather that we would see this time as a chance for us to give our minds and our hearts to you, that you uh, would mold and shape us. That as we worship you by submitting to your word, that you would, would take that simple act of worship and that you would multiply it in our lives and that you would show us yourself on the pages of Scripture, that you would, that you would give us a glimpse and an insight into the Lord Jesus and into his character and his love and his grace. Father, every one of us here, whether we are a skeptic, whether we are a seeker, whether we are a disciple, all of us need to know the truth. And the truth is found in the Lord Jesus. So Father, please don't let me get in the way of folks hearing this. Pray that you would forgive my sin, that you would wash me with the blood of Christ, and that your Holy Spirit would speak your truth. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus is on a little personal retreat with his disciples. He says, you know, guys, we, we want to talk a little bit. And he begins out by addressing the, the question of mistaken identity. He begins in verses uh, 18 through 20 by asking a question uh, and, and letting an answer come 
from his disciples and then kind of rephrasing it a little bit, a little more directly to kind of get to the heart of the matter. He says that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Kind of what's my reputation around town, so to speak? What do, when, when people think of Jesus, what do they think? It's kind of what he's asking, how we put it in, in our modern day vernacular. And they said, some think you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been executed by King Herod uh, probably some months or maybe even up to a year prior to this uh, particular passage of scripture. Uh, John the Baptist had confronted Herod uh, about his immoral lifestyle and Herod had had him put in prison and later had him beheaded. So some folks are saying, well, we, some people think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. The second answer they give us, some folks think that you're Elijah. Now, if you've, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He, he was one of the heavy hitters, so to speak. He was, uh, he was the one that confronted King Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He was, he was kind of a hero in ancient Israel. He lived some 800-ish years, 850 years perhaps, before the time of Jesus. And so folks are saying, you know, maybe there's a rumor going around that maybe Elijah has risen from the dead, or more generically, just one of the prophets of old. But, but rumor has it, Jesus, that you're somebody pretty important, that you are, you're someone of great significance to our people and to our nation. And Jesus takes this answer in, and he, and he listens to it carefully. And then he, he looks, I think, probably around the group at, at the 12 guys there with him, and he says, well, let me rephrase the question. Who do you say that I am? You know, Jesus has a way of, of, of getting to the point. <laughs> and, he, and he does it very quickly here and very succinctly here. And the question he asked his disciples on that day is the question that he's been asking for thousands of years. And it's the question that he's asking this morning. He's, it's not directed towards your neighbor. It's not directed towards your spouse. It's not directed towards your child or your friend or the person that brought you to church. He's directing it to you. He's looking you in the eye. He's looking me in the eye. And he's saying, but wait a minute, who do you say that I am? The decision about Jesus is, is always a personal one. It's not one that someone else can make for you. If you're a child here this morning, you're in grade school or high school, and your parents have brought you to church, you still have to answer that question. Just because you're in middle school doesn't mean that the question skips over you. You have to come to grips with who Jesus is just like every adult in this room does as well. It's a question for each one of us individually. And Peter is very quick to give the answer. Peter, I think, sees himself kind of as a spokesman for the group. Maybe he's a little bit older than the rest of the guys. Maybe he just had the personality that that spoke up. But Peter doesn't doesn't pull any punches. He jumps right in. He says, you're the Christ of God. Now, that's a pretty amazing answer, given the fact that Peter is, uh, is using terminology that comes straight out of the Old Testament that technically translated means you're the anointed one. Now, the anointed one in the Old Testament, you would anoint kings when they became kings or or prophets when they became prophets or the priest got uh, anointed when the high priest took over. But this phrase is used solely for the Messiah, for the Son of God, for for the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Peter kind of puts his, his finger right on. He says, no, you're, you're God in the flesh. <laughs> you're the king. You're the ruler of the universe. You're the deliverer of God's people. And notice as we read the passage that Jesus doesn't correct that. He'll say, oh, no, Peter, you missed it. I'm just, I'm just a good teacher. Jesus accepts that title for himself. Jesus clears up any mistake about his identity. We've said this as we've gone through this sermon series, but I'll say it again. You can, you can claim a lot of things about Jesus. You can have an opinion about Jesus. But understand that Jesus saw himself. 
as the proclaimed son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king and the ruler of all that is. Now, if you're a disciple and Peter gives this answer and Jesus kind of nods his head, yes, what's your reaction? Well, it's got to be pretty positive, doesn't it? I mean, you're at the seat of power. If this is the anointed one, then, then good things are probably going to happen to you for being around him, right? And actually, that's a gospel that's preached today. If you just get close to Jesus, if you just trust in Jesus, you're going you're gonna to have all this power. You're going to have all of this ability. You're, you're going to be able to be shielded from bad things, and you're, you're right in the right place. Well, Peter, or excuse me, well, Jesus maybe changes that message just a bit. It's not that he doesn't have power. He does hold all the power in the universe. He calls us to walk by faith and not by sight, but he also wants us to understand very clearly what it means to be this anointed one. Because you think, I, th- I think that, that the disciples, and I think probably for us today, we tend to look at this in temporal terms. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of my life today? That's, that's kind of the, the context in which we kind of walk out our Christian life. And I think a better approach might be for the disciples to say, what does it mean for Jesus to be uh, the Lord, period? <laughs> not today, but forever. What does that look like? What does it mean that this anointed one has come? It's, it can't be just for this temporal world. And so Jesus goes on and he offers an explanation about their faulty uh, understanding of his mission. And he says this in verses 21 and 22. He strictly charges them and commands them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Jesus takes the Son of Man title for himself, and we've mentioned this before, but it's straight out of Daniel chapter 7. You can go back and read that later on today if you want. But this idea of the Son of Man suffering is foreign to the disciples. Because you see, in Daniel chapter 7, when we're introduced to the Son of Man, here's some of the things that are said. I'm not going to read it word for word, but here's the general idea of those verses in Daniel 7. The Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom of all peoples and nations and languages to serve Him, and His dominion is everlasting, and it will not pass away, and His kingdom will not be destroyed. So if you're Jesus saying, I'm the Son of Man, and you're standing next to me, you're like, where do I sign up? I'm ready. Let's go. How do, I, how do I get involved in this deal? Because I want to be close to the guy who's going to, who's going to be the heir to all of this. I was uh, watching the news this week, and probably some of you were too, and I, I uh, was watching as uh, the um, uh, Obama's uh, uh, campaign was coming into its height, and it was uh, found out that, that Barack Obama was going to be the Democratic uh, nominee. And I watched not only him, but I watched the reaction of the people around him. And the reason I watch the reaction of the people around him is because all those folks that, that work so hard and, you know, that they put in all the long, long hours, you know, if their guy or gal gets elected president, they're right now in the seat of influence. They're in a place of, they're, they're kind of can, can be the power behind the throne, so to speak. And so I get the feeling that maybe the disciples are, wow, being around the Son of Man. Hey, remember Daniel 7? This is a cool thing. But then Jesus flips it on his head and he says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must be killed. The Son of Man must be raised. And you got to be going, we just took a left turn, and I'm not sure what happened. Jesus, what are you talking about? The Son of Man has to suffer. He's got to be rejected. He's got to be killed. That can't possibly be true. The Son of Man is the one who, who reigns and rules forever. Why are you saying these things? Well, very simply, Jesus is saying that the, the pathway to his kingdom to make the, his dominion an eternal dominion, 
to ensure that there will be a, a people that will serve him forever in glorious uh, majesty in, in heaven for all of eternity. The only way that was going to happen is if it came through the cross. Jesus knew that the cross was the pathway the Son of Man must take, must take if he was going to establish his kingdom. Because the only way to establish the kingdom of God is through grace, through forgiveness, through mercy. You and I need God's grace. We don't deserve God's favor. We don't earn God's merit. We are lost and broken sinners. We have rebelled against God. And unless once somebody stands in our place, we are forever doomed. And so Jesus understood that, yes, the Son of Man would have dominion and he would have glory and he would have power, but it was going to come through the cross. And so he begins to help his disciples to understand that. As Leon Morris wrote, Jesus left them no doubt that being Messiah meant a cross. So now we have uh, the identity straightened out, that Jesus is the anointed one, is the Messiah. We also get a better glimpse of his mission, that he's got to go to the cross to establish his kingdom, to be able to offer you forgiveness and to be able to offer me forgiveness so we can put our faith in him as Savior and Lord. But what does that mean about our discipleship? What does that mean about us following him? Let's look at verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you underline or circle one word in that sentence, it's the word daily. We'll come back to that in a minute. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will loses his life for my sake will save it. And then verse 25 is a rhetorical question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? She says, disciples, I, I don't want you to be confused about who I am. I am the anointed one. I am the son of man. I also, disciples, don't want you to be confused about my mission. I have come to seek and save the lost, and I'm doing that in a way that, that means I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and be raised. But disciples, I also want you to understand what that means for you today, 21st century Green Tree Community Church. If you were going to sum up this entire statement and try and put it as succinctly as you could, I would say this. It means that disciples can't be self-centered. It means that to use disciple and self-centered in the same sentence as an oxymoron. You cannot put those two together because Jesus emptied himself. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it's you're following me to the place of execution. When the Roman soldiers showed up in town and they had a cross with them and they dragged a guy out of a house and they made him pick up the cross and carry it and they left town, they walked out of town, you knew that guy wasn't coming back. It was a one-way trip. And Jesus says, disciples, you need to understand that if you're going to be with me, that you cannot be self-centered. If you, uh, if you talk to my wife, Cindy, and you catch her at a moment where she's willing to be honest with you and, and tell you what she, what she really thinks sometimes, uh, and if you ask her this question, what, what's one of your biggest um, challenges you have in being married to Tom? <laughs> she will talk about my self-centeredness she would tell you if she was being honest that one of the things that she says to me a whole lot more often than I care to admit, Tom, why does it always have to be about you? It's interesting that a person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus and the person who knows that disciple the best of everybody in the whole world (laughs) puts those things in the same sentence. But it's true. How often am I so centered on what Tom wants when Tom wants it? And I lose sight of the fact that this is all about death. (laughs) It's all about 
execution of my self-interest, of my passions, of my desires, because there's something much greater in store. I want to give you a practical application for this because I think there are, there are several key components to this that I don't want us to miss. The first is when Jesus says we've got to die to ourselves, I think the first thing he's talking about is salvation. Lots and lots of people, probably people in this room, maybe even some this morning, have been or are under the misconception that you work hard, you go to heaven, that you do good things and you go to heaven. And Jesus says you got to kill that thought every day of your life. If you've signed up for 2028 because you think you're going to get brownie points with God, you think he's going to mark that down on the plus side of your journal, and that's going to get you into heaven, you ought not come to 2028 because that would not be, you'd be coming under, under, under misunderstanding. You cannot save yourself. But you try, and I try, almost on a daily basis to prove how good we are. Now, I'm not saying go out and do bad stuff, okay? Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but what I am saying is if you think you're earning your way into heaven, Jesus says you're sadly mistaken because you have to die to that understanding. You can no more save yourself than I can fly to the moon. You can't count on your work, your effort, or any intrinsic goodness you think you have. Nothing you do will be good enough. Unfortunately, we're always looking for something to make us think that we deserve it. And Jesus says, you got to kill that idea daily basis because I have a new paradigm. And in my paradigm, in my kingdom, Saving is actually losing, and losing is actually saving. Friends, are you willing to give your life to Jesus? That's the question he's asking. Are you willing to say, I can't do it on my own? I need mercy. I need grace. I need a Savior. When Jesus says you've got to die, you've got to get on that cross and deny yourself, you have to deny that you can save yourself. Secondly, though, I think he's very clearly talking about suffering that takes place in this world. And he's challenging his disciples to ready themselves for the, for the challenges that come their way, for the, for the, the opportunities they have, as, as one theologian put it, to grow in their faith. And those opportunities don't come in the easy moments. They don't come uh, when, it, when everything feels safe and good and, and under control. Those moments to grow in our faith come when the fire tests us, when the trials come our way. The brother of Jesus, James, who later became a disciple of Jesus, put it this way when he wrote a letter to some of his friends, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness or produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, you want to hear something crazy? (laughs) As you get up every day, you have to be able to say, Lord Jesus, this might be a day of suffering. But if it is, praise God, because in that day, I will know more about what it means to depend on you than on a day of ease and comfort. And that is so radically different from the message that you and I hear on a daily basis. We, have, we tend to ask ourselves when the struggles come, when the clouds surround us, we tend to ask ourselves, why is this happening? And we tend to ask it with an inflection and a tone of voice that says, this isn't fair or this ought not be. Friends, we need to understand that there are moments where the struggle comes and it's a gift from our father because he's saying, I'm going to make you stronger. I'm going to make you better suited to run the race. I'm going to make you a disciple that can actually make an impact on this world that will be long lasting. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make you someone who, who when you speak into people's lives, they listen because they know that you've been through the furnace 
and that your eyes are still on me and that you are learning what it means to walk by faith and not by sight and your trust is growing more and more in me. And child, I can't do that in the softness and the comfort of your bed. I got to do that on the rocky road. When is the gold the purest? When it comes through the refiner's fire. And friends, as disciples, we got to get our minds around this. We got to understand this because this is a tough world in which to live. There's nothing easy about being on this planet. I was watching uh, The Princess Bride the other day. I love that movie. Maybe you've seen The Princess Bride. And there's a place where, where um, the, 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 the two lovers have come back together, but she doesn't know that it's her Wesley. He still is wearing his mask and he, he hasn't revealed himself to her yet. And uh, she says something about, about, you know, life should be better than this. And he said, Princess, life is pain. And anybody that tells you any different is trying to sell you something. How true is that? Life is, is, is struggle. We live in a broken world, friends. And as disciples of Jesus, one of the things we need to die to is our misunderstanding that it ought to be simple and it ought to be easy and understand that when the trials come, our Father is strengthening us. He is giving us a gift of endurance and perseverance that will bring glory to Jesus and will nourish our souls. And so Jesus says, be ready to deny yourself daily. And then he says, and I want you to ultimately follow me. I think in all of this, that may be the best summation word. Following is now the goal of my life, not to lead. I don't walk alongside Jesus. I don't consult with Jesus about my direction. I don't say, okay, Lord, I'm getting up today and I'm going to go do all this. And I want you to bless this. God, I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, work in this particular area. And I expect you to kind of go ahead of me and make the path smooth. That ceases to be how I function. How I function now as a follower. I wake up in the morning, I say, Jesus, where are you going? Who are you going to talk to today? Who are you going to engage with today that needs to know the gospel? Would you mind terribly if I came along? (laughs) Would that be okay? I'd really like to be around you today. And I'm not going to get it right. And I'm not always going to submit my will to yours. I'm not always going to say the right things. But boy, I really, 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 I just want to follow along. See what you're doing. I'd like to be part of that. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. He says, I want to know him. He's talking about Jesus and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, you know what? If it means dying in order that I might know Jesus more, sign me up. Wow. (laughs) I'm nowhere near that. But that's the goal. Jesus says, you got to understand who I am. I'm the Messiah. You got to understand my mission. My mission is to give myself. I'm going to suffer. I wouldn't call you to suffer if I wasn't going to do it before you, but I'm doing it so that, that after I'm killed, I may be raised and this eternal kingdom may be introduced and it will never falter and it will never shake and it will never be destroyed. And you can count on that. But in order to be part of that, you got to die. You got to give it all up and put your faith in me. So here's the rub this morning. We're proud, self-made folks. We want to do it on our own. We want to think we're pretty good. We want to assume that we have all the answers. It was interesting, our reveal survey said that, that one of our struggles in growing in disciples is that we make it a low priority or we're too busy to fit it into our schedule. I'm too busy to follow Jesus. It's not that important to me. I don't say that in an accusing way. I say that as 
a reflection of my own life as well. When following Jesus should be the number one thing I do above all else. We want comfort of life, and we're too tied to this world with, a little, with little vision for the next. And I think part of that is because we haven't quite grasped the promise that's in this passage. That is really an area that we don't emphasize very much. We typically get to the deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We, and we typically kind of stop and live there for a while and try to, try to figure that out. But I want you to see that there's a promise in this passage of Scripture. Jesus simply says this. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus isn't talking about being a martyr there, although that could happen and has happened to people. But he's saying, are you willing to lose your life? Are you willing to, to let go of the reins? Are you willing to stop controlling? Are you willing to try to stop earning your way and believe in this amazing thing called grace that seems so absurd to the rest of the world that, that a, the little Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago hung on a cross and that gets you into heaven? Go share that with your next door neighbor. They're going to think you're not wrong with both oars in the water. But it's true. And Jesus says, you got to die to your pride. you got to die to your self-assurance. Because then the promise of that kingdom that was talked about back in Daniel 7 becomes yours forever. Let's pray.